Blog Talk Radio. Hi, I'm author and publisher Tracy L. Slatten. It's my belief that the most interesting, creative, and original voices today are heard outside of the big corporations, studios, and galleries. Individuals of courage, inspiration, and vision are seizing the opportunities to create and promote their art themselves. I'm here to support them and to bring their stories to you. On this show, I'll interview independent artists of all kinds, unusual thinkers, and even some healers about their process. How do they do it? How do they start with an idea and bring it to life in the world? This show intends to illuminate the journey. Feel free to call in to 516-453-6052 with questions or live chat with me at blogtalkradio.com slash independent artists thinkers. Great to have you with us. Hi, this is Tracy Slatten, hosting Independent Artists and Thinkers. I'm so happy to welcome you to the show. We have a great show lined up for you today, and I'm so sorry the show started late. Blog Talk Radio is having pretty severe technical issues, so I, you know, will be in touch with them about that. But I'm really happy you're here, and I'm grateful and humbled that so many people are listening to this show. I created this show to support those brave souls who are operating outside the structures of the big established corporations. As the intro to the show says, I intend to illuminate the unusual journey and to bring it to you. I'm interested in alternatives to conventional thinking and conventional answers. Please do call in with questions or comments to 516-453-6052. You can also live chat me at blogtalkradio.com, independent artist thinkers. Um, and do email me in between shows if you want to suggest a guest or have me ask questions of a particular guest. You can reach me at Tracy at TracyLSlatten.com. In the coming weeks, some great guests are coming on, and hopefully Blog Talk Radio will work out their problems. Next week, we have a special show at 1 p.m. on Wednesday, June 10. Stephanie Maloney, a young musical theater actress, will talk about her journey. She's at an earlier point in her trajectory than most of my guests but she's already thinking out of the box, and she's the second-generation performer in her family. On June 18th at 1 p.m., Desiree Watson of Wellness International will talk about the wellness lifestyle. On June 25th, Marnie Galloway, a comic artist and illustrator, will talk about the state of the comic and the graphic novel. On July 2nd, producer and director Christine Yu will talk about her journey of making The Wedding Palace and what it's like to be a woman director in Hollywood, and I can tell you it's hard. On July 9th, internationally renowned Vedic astrologer Camilla Sutton will tell us how to make our lucky stars work for us. So tune in and keep checking the website, independentartistthinkers.com, and the Blog Talk Radio page to find out who will be on the show. I am so delighted today to have a wonderful person on the show, author and educator Tracy Gray. She wears many hats and she wears them all well. She is a tech entrepreneur, an educator, a filmmaker, and a social activist. Tracy Gray has devoted her career to developing interdisciplinary curricula 
by creating and directing diversity and intercultural programs at the Ethical Culture Fieldson School, New York, the 12 Comics Learning Support Program, New York, and the Carey School in San Mateo, California. Tracy has launched international partnerships for global awareness with the Antelope Foundation in Kenya, an infinite family in South Africa, and the Ghana Initiative. In her years in the classroom and as an education entrepreneur, Tracy Gray has designed programs creating and directing diversity, multicultural and science technology, engineering, art, and mathematics, so STEAM, S-T-E-A-M. As a teacher, practitioner, and administrator, Tracy has devoted her career to building effective educational initiatives in her commitment to advance 21st century learning competency skills she has established international partnerships to expand student cultural and global awareness. Tracy facilitates workshops to assist underrepresented communities find and design pathways to careers in the science, technology, engineering, arts, and mathematics fields through her venture, the Sankofa Global Project. So, Tracy, welcome. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you, Tracy. Tracy? I'm so excited to be on the show. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear. I'm so sorry that we had a late start. Blog Talk Radio was having very severe technical problems, and, and so, but I'm glad you're on here now. No worries, not at all. I'm happy to be here. So, you know, I've known you for a long time because my oldest daughter was in your class, and I just want to start off by telling my listeners what an amazing and gifted teacher you are. What I noticed was Thank that you, you extend... You're welcome. You extend your personal energy field like an umbrella to encompass all your students so that your authority is very strong and palpable, but it's also sort of naturally nurturing. So I hope, you know, you can talk about that a little bit later because it's sort of wonderful to witness it and to see children flourish in that. But I wanted to start off with how you began your journey and what it has taken for you to arrive at the place where you are currently. What training did you have, and when did you know you were going to be all the things you are, and what did you think you would be, and you know, tell me about your childhood. Absolutely. Well, it all began, obviously, with my parents. My parents are very strong proponents of education. Um, they, I grew up in Detroit, and my parents wanted to make sure that my siblings and I had the best quality education, and so they enrolled us in private school, but it was a challenge. We had to travel across town to get to our school, taking public transportation, and at the age of 11, I was responsible for bringing my brother, my sister, and I to school every single day, and so, which meant we met, we had to travel an hour and a half to get to school. You know, traveling oh to school in in that way is um, a real, you get an education even in that setting. Um, I was very, very fortunate to also attend uh, a private uh, high school, went on to college where I was determined to become an attorney. That was, you know, what I was going to do. I was going to be an attorney. I was going to study international law and I graduated from college with the intent of going to Columbia University, and I moved to New York, not quite understanding what that meant, and uh, taking the LSATs and all that preparation, and um, I took the LSATs, but obviously I did not get into Columbia right away, and I was very disheartened, and I moved to California for a while to sort of figure out what my life was going to be like, and I was having such a good time, I said, if I don't leave this place, I'll never find a productive path. And I came back to New York and I 
began working at the Department of Social Services, and my colleagues, one of my colleagues said to me, why are you here? Why are you working here? I said, well, I want to make a difference. And I said, well, well, I, I feel like I'm making a difference. She said, you know, you finish your work in half a day. You know, you have such a gift with people. You really should become a teacher. And I rolled my eyes at that time because my entire life I've been told I should go into education, and I fought it tooth and nail. And I finally decided, you know, let me go into this education field. And this is quite a number of years ago, and there was a call for teachers in the New York City public school. And I took up the call, and I was I received my per diem certificate in um, seventh grade social studies. And I walked the streets of Harlem looking for uh, a job. And so I walked into PS 175, PSIS 175, and I saw a poster on the wall, and the uh, poster said, all children can learn how to read. And, of That's course, cool. I parroted that in my, <laughs> yes, I parroted that in my interview, and, of course, I was hired. And the assistant got one here who believes all children can learn how to read. And I didn't know if she was being mockingly indulgent or she was impressed that I even thought to use the poster as part of my interview. Well, the day before school started, the principal took one look at me and said, no, we're not going to have you teach seventh grade. You look too much like the students. And we're going to have you teach first grade. <laughs> and I was very disappointed because I thought, you know, I... I had these visions of, because I was a political science major in undergrad at Wilberforce and Central State University, and I said, I really want to teach third world international politics and help the students gather a sense of what a world view is. And the principal goes, that's very nice, but you're going to teach first grade. And I was a little disappointed, but then I was very surprised when I, um, the first day of school, a lot, I didn't understand that because I knew it was in, in an economically disadvantaged community, but I didn't understand how economically disadvantaged it was. And um, some of the students at that time were 15 and 16 years old going into seventh grade, and they oh quickly dispatched with, dispatched with two teachers in the fall. And so I was kind of grateful that the principal switched me to first grade, but I found out very quickly I was ill-equipped to teach first grade. I would teach poetry because that's all I knew how to do. And um, by February, to I was for, crying. To the first graders? To the first graders, yes. And so, because that's all I knew. And um, at that time, I also met Stan Chu from Bank Street College of Education. And he said to me, Tracy, if you want to be a teacher, you actually have to learn how to teach. And I said, oh, okay. And he encouraged me to apply for my master's. And that's what I did. I applied for my master's at Bank Street. And he's also introduced me to the independent school world. And I was very grateful for that because it was a true humbling and learning experience because I realized how much I didn't know. But in being in that school at PS175, I had no idea what I didn't know. And um, I've trained under two master teachers, Betty Radin and Kelvina Butcher. I believe Kelvina is still at the Dalton School in Manhattan. Fantastic mentors and teachers who taught me how to layer curriculum while meeting students' needs by differentiating instruction, by finding out um, 
what appealed to each student and finding out how to reach them and on an individual basis. I learned that very early on from these teachers, but I also learned how important it was to clean up after the students cleaned up and how much planning and preparation took place. The school day is not from 8 o'clock a.m. till 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Not, I mean, most teachers spend hours upon hours planning instruction, preparing for students, thinking about what do their students need. And I spent hours, I mean, I remember one summer um, preparing for the fall, and I had an idea of what my classroom was supposed to look like because preparation was really important and making sure that this classroom felt welcoming and inviting before the students even arrived. And I know all teachers have that that drive, that pull to make sure that the classroom environment is welcoming. And um, I had this idea, I wanted to put these mobiles up on the on the lights. And my mother uh-huh. happened to be visiting with me. And she said, well, do the students have to have the mobiles on the lights right now? And I said, well, I'm not finished. I was panicked. She goes, they don't know that you're planning to have mobiles on the lights, you know, right? I said, oh, that's right. <laughs> and so, and so it, it, it reminded me to take a step back and to give an opportunity to get to know the students before I completed the mobiles. I spent many years at the Ethical Culture Fieldston School where I was very privileged to develop the multicultural education through Folk Arts Program, Folk Arts Program with Bank Street College of Education. Um, I had the, the great opportunity to, I received a fellowship to study the history of Paris. I um, was looking for ways in the years that I taught kindergarten, how to incorporate, how to bring Africa into the classroom. I wrote a grant with my colleagues um, uh, from the both elementary schools, middle school, and the high school. And um, although we didn't receive the grant right away, I was able to work with one of the venture grant board members, Dr. Beryl Dorsett, to plan a trip to Ghana, West Africa. And I was completely wow. humbled by the experience. Yes, it was amazing. And because I thought I knew something, again, these lifelong learning opportunities that I had the great privilege and still have the great privilege of taking a part in. Um, I went to Ghana and I was the youngest person on the tour. And I was not a young person at the time. And so I walked around for 10 days filming, listening, learning, watching how these women uh, and the women who I traveled with were in their 50s, 60s, 70s, and some in their 80s. And they um, had built a um, health clinic, medical clinic. They built schools. They were helping students receive scholarships so that they can continue their education. And I was blown away. And I learned so much about the history on the continent of Africa, which, which also connected to my lifelong dream of, uh, of filmmaking. And so, uh, and, and telling stories because stories are important. Uh, stories from the past, yeah. stories from I the present story, are really stories important. Stories are how we learn. Stories are how we learn, right? Exactly. And so I really wanted to incorporate that. And I was very fortunate, again, to some of the parents in the school, Amy Conrad Stokes, who's a CNN hero. She has infinite families. And, um, and, And the early stages of her organization, our class, our classes, had an opportunity to Skype with students from Nkosi's Haven in South Africa and with um, uh, Elizabeth Bohart, Elizabeth uh, Epstein Bohart. um, She started the Antelope Foundation. We we had a pen pal program with um, our students and the students in Kenya. 
And so I, I've had these, I've had amazing, amazing mentors and teachers and colleagues to help me inform my choices as an educator. And I've also had amazing experiences and students. And so everything that I've done in education has revolved around students, even my current work. I, um, well, let me, wait, wait, let me ask you, I want to, let me ask you a couple yes. of questions first. When sure. this wonderful process you've just told us about, when did you learn to do that thing that I really admired when I watched you kind of like extend your own personal energy field to be like, yeah. I don't like a, like an umbrella or like, um, you know, to just encompass all your students. When did you learn to do that? And then after you answer that, who are you now and what do you do now? Sure, sure. Well, you know, Kelvina Butcher was a great, was and is a great role model as a teacher and embodying the spirit of comfort and warmth and embracing students where they are. And so I, I literally modeled from my mentor. And um, part of that m- modeling comes from knowing that the classroom is an extension of ourselves, an extension of our home lives, that the classroom is a home away from home. And as a classroom teacher, I felt it was my responsibility and my duty to make sure that students felt as comfortable as possible. Now, some people may or may not know this, but students are very aware that the teacher is the quote-unquote person in charge. And so I didn't have to assert my authority as such as being the person in charge. My job was and still is currently in my work with teachers and with students and directors with people in general is to make people feel warm invited and welcome into any space that I occupy. And so it's those those lifelong lessons of getting to know people and and being empathetic and intuitive in, in figuring out what their needs were and so and what their needs are. And when I come in contact with someone or meet someone, it's really important for me to understand who that person is and how our energy can connect with one another. And so I mean I've been told very often it's something I I didn't want to necessarily embrace that I'm an intuitive person. And um, I don't know if you've ever done those Briggs-Myers um, uh, tests. And at one point I thought I was this, um, you know, powerhouse, strong, strong, strong person who, you know, was authoritarian. And when I compared what my thinking process was with one of these um, personality tests and saw that consistently there's an intuitive, empathetic um, uh, nature that I embody, I began to embrace that. And so, you know, that's a, that I, each of us is born with different gifts. And so, uh, and I firmly and truly believe that from student to adult, that we all have our own intuitive gifts. And it's, it is our responsibility, if you will, to um, develop mm-hmm. those gifts and to and to share them with others. And so having a, a sense of humor and not taking myself so seriously has always uh-huh. also played a role played a role in me creating this sort of environment in the classroom and in my interactions with people. So you know, kind of laughing at myself and um, and, um, and 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 inviting people to laugh at me. So. Um, and I, I've always thought about um, how I want to be treated by other people, and I try to do the same. Not that I'm expecting people to treat me the way I treat them, but I want people to feel warm and comfortable and and um, um, secure in my presence. Uh-huh. So I guess that that's a long answer to your question. <laughs> 
And so, well, that's um, a wonderful what, answer. Who are yes. you now, and what do you do now? Ah, now, well, I do lots of things now. Uh, I'm first and foremost, I have really, I'm really in a space where I love my life. I really love my life. I love who I am uh, as a woman, as a human being, as a mother, as a member of a community. I that's who I am first and foremost. It's it's a state of being, not doing, being who I am and being comfortable in my skin. And that's come that's cool. as most of us yeah, most of us have um many experiences that uplift us, challenge us and sometimes downright beat us up and I've uh, really decided to be a person who's been who has forgiven herself and because uh, I can forgive other people, but if I don't forgive myself for mistakes I've made or, or perceived mistakes, I um, have really worked on, I spent a lot of time working on myself from the inside out. Um, I, I'll never forget I think, when I was a classroom teacher. Yes? Uh-huh. I think what you're saying is really important because we all make mistakes. And I think yes. that kind of the brittleness of perfectionism um, expecting ourselves or other people to be perfect, but especially when we sp- expect ourselves to be perfect, I think that's a form of self-loathing. It is correct, absolutely. And I, 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 um, I, I spent enough years loathing myself, <laughs> and so I, I, I'm just really spending time loving myself and loving and I can't the choices that I make. <laughs> I can't imagine you not loving yourself or feeling that. I mean, I know we're all human oh, yeah. we all go into self-loathing, yes. but it's so hard because you've accomplished so much. You know, you've done such a good job raising your children, and, you know, you just have done astounding things. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Well, you know, we all have our, our outward face and our inward face, and so I think that's part of it. Um, I mean, my my life sounds wonderful, and it sounds wonderful to me right now, but it's come with its challenges. I mean, um, although my parents made sure that we went to private school growing up in Detroit, we were very poor. We were very poor, and uh, my parents were divorced. My dad lived in New York. My mom lived in Michigan, and so you've got that challenge of, you know, divorced parents, and then That's even... Tough. Um, That's tough to negotiate. <laughs> It is tough to negotiate, and even, you know, um, going off to college, and and um, I had the I felt the burden um, of making sure that I didn't fail. I didn't want to fail. Um, um, I mean, it took me forever to complete my master's. I mean, I have a dual master's degree, but it took me forever to complete it. I mean, being a single parent, um, I think you and I talked about this, Tracy, before. Um, um, my one of my books is um, Mommy, Where's My Daddy? And it's based on a conversation that I had with my oldest daughter because her father was not with us. And he made a choice when I was pregnant for to leave and to live his life. And one of the last conversations I had with him, I said, you're free to do that and I will raise my child by myself. And I did. And that was incredibly difficult. Let me, let me ask you, Tracy. Yes. In such yes. A, let me. This is really important because part of the intent of this show is to give people models for, you know, kind of an unconventional, out of the box life. And I think that one of the most mm-hmm. important traits to live that way is resilience. So, how did you develop Absolutely. the personal resilience to embark on 
a life of incredible accomplishment and meaning. I mean, the meaningful things you're doing, you're not just accomplishing things. Man, they matter in the world, what you're doing. Yes. How did you find the resilience and the strength to do that in the face of what must have been a devastating loss? It was not easy. And, again, even though uh, one thing I admire so much about my parents is their resilience. My parents, uh, my mother grew up very poor. My father grew up very poor. Um, My mother, I believe, was the first in her family to go off to college, to go to college. Um, But she didn't finish until after um, she was, until all of us were born. She started and she stopped and had a family and then went back. And I'll never forget, I had to be about seven when my mom graduated and got her bachelor's. And that was a very big deal. That is cool. I mean, my father. That's amazing. Yeah. It is amazing. And my father, I mean, so much so, my mother used to get up at 4 o'clock in the morning to make sure that everything was prepared, the laundry, the food, everything, so that when we went off to school, we had everything. There was a chair. There were two chairs in the living room, and um, um, there was a broomstick that she put between it, and all of our clothes would be hung up for the week. So we would just come get our clothes, and we'd get ready, and she'd have everything ready so that she could finish school and so that we would go to school. There were occasions my brother and I went to class with her. And so my mother set the example. I mean, my father, another great example, also grew up very poor. My father did very poorly in high school because he said he was so poor and he was so hungry all the time. And Aww. all he wanted to do was make make money so he could eat. That was, that was oh, he just wanted to eat. Just, so he, it's heart-wrenching to hear that. Yeah, yeah. But, but, this, but these were my examples. My parents were are, were and still are my examples of being resilient, that no matter what life throws your way, there is always a way to bounce back. I mean, my father, and he'll help tell you himself, I mean, he, he, he overcame a lot. My father has like five degrees right now. He's got his bachelor's, got a couple masters, and has his JD. He practiced law for many years. Um, when, when I was a teenager, he had five law offices, uh, two wow, in Philadelphia, three in the show, too. You should, you should. I mean, he's got quite a story to tell. And but if the thing is, he blew it. He blew it all. He'll tell you. He um he got in trouble. He embezzled from escrow, and um and almost went to jail. But he and he went from being a very wealthy man to living in a shack in um, Far Rockaway, Queens, and he rebuilt his life. Now this is as I'm graduating from college. I'm graduating wow. from college, and my father doesn't have money anymore. You know what I mean? He had money, I guess, when we were teenagers because when we were growing up, we didn't have a whole lot. When we were teenagers, you know, he, he had built a very lucrative life for himself, but he, and he will tell you himself, he got very greedy. And then he um, went, was living in a shack in Far Rockaway. He's written a book about it, and then he rebuilt yeah, his life. Yeah, okay. sounds he like went, a great book. <laughs> it is a great book. And, you know, he, and it's a, when, when I look at my parents, I have no excuse not to build a an even greater life or to strive for more. And my parents are pretty impressive. They really, they're accomplished, impressive people. I mean, my mother has studied at least five languages on her own for fun. She dances, she dances and she plays the ukulele and the piano. Um, Even though my parents are, I'm I'm, amazing parents. I really, really do. And so they, they set the bar of excellence for me and and the bar for resilience. And as I've gone through different difficulties, and all of my siblings and I have gone through different challenges and difficulties in our life, our parents have always been our champions. 
Of course you can do it. Of course. Why wouldn't you? Okay, that didn't work. Try something else. And so, um, although, and yeah, I that's, got I think, great mentors. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. that's the key. That is the, That phrase you just said, if that doesn't work, try something else. I think that's really important. Yes. And, and you know, I, um, I, um, when I moved out to California from New York from leaving the classroom and transitioning to an administrative position, I took on the role of director of studies at the Cary School, and my responsibilities were curriculum instruction and assessment as well as the extended care program. So I was also taking care of um, extended care, meaning before school and after care, and developing the curriculum and programming around that. And um, being from Michigan, spending some Yes, but it's also in uh, uh, one of those situations where I saw that something wasn't working and I had a decision to make. Within six months, uh, I knew, okay, this wasn't the place for me, and but I stayed for two years and, you know, gave it the valiant effort and talked with my my uh, my boss and I, um, uh, the head of school, and charted out a plan. What was, What were my next steps going to be? And I didn't have, it took me about six months to figure that out. So it took me a year and a half to figure out what exactly what I was going to do after leaving. And so I stayed at the Cary School for two years exactly. And that's when I went back to my idea of working with students um, in a different way. Uh, my um, former partner and ex-husband and I started a... Mm-hmm. Is this when you tell us about the Sankofa Global Program? I'd yes. really like to hear yes. about the founding yes. of that. Yes. Well, I, my my former partner and ex-husband, as I was saying, uh, and I started 12 Comics Learning Support Program in 2004. And it's comic books. It's creating a superhero character. Students have to create their superhero character. For example, I have a superhero character. Her name is Flame. And my uh, powers are pyrophosic cool. energy. And so part of my job as a develop a character developer is to codify what are my scientific skills. And so we were eliciting from the students, okay, you can harness the power of the sun. What would it take to harness the power of the sun? That means you have to know what the sun is made of. And so really giving students an opportunity to think about what does it mean to use or uh, to use energy or to use powers, and you've got to be able to explain them. And I noticed during that work that a lot of girls weren't spending a lot of time on the scientific portion of their powers. I was at 12 Comics as a, while I was teaching, and so we were doing that as um, after-school programs and weekend programs from 2004 to 2011. And so as I was leaving the Carey School, I went back to that. I said, what can I do to get back to my idea of helping girls in science, technology, engineering, and math? I hadn't included the art component yet. And so I spent some time talking with students. I had the great opportunity to go to um, a race and technology workshop at Stanford University. I got a chance to meet some amazing, amazing people and to talk with them um, and to invite them on this journey with me. I got some great advice from a young entrepreneur named Matthew Wise. I believe that's his last name. And he um, um, said to me, you know, Tracy, you really should – if you want to build a product, find out who's your customer base first before you even design right, your right. business plan. And I was like, oh, okay, I didn't know that. I'm scrap that other idea. And so I spent a lot of time talking with students about 
what does it mean to be in a science field? And I talk, spoke with students of color um, from several universities, my alma mater included, and found out that students were not getting access, students of color in particular, were not getting access to uh, to um, Was that internships. female students of color primarily or all students of color? Do you think it was weighted one way or the other in terms of gender, or was it really just students of color as a general thing? It is heavily um, female students of color, yes. But students of color, I mean, it's, it's, it, it's across the board. But, yes, female students in the computer science field were feeling it in particular. Um, they graduated at the top of their class, and I'm talking about students from Stanford that were got accepted into Stanford who graduated at the top of their classes in high school and then went on to Stanford and and failed, had some measure of failure, I mean, in, in their in the field that they'd chosen because they hadn't had the collaborative um, component in their high schools or they, they didn't spend enough time in critical thinking or problem solving, collaborating. So they came in and and had to na- try to navigate, okay, how do I learn the new content as well as building rapport and building a cohort at the same time? And I asked the students, so what would have helped you to to even enter this way? They said, well, maybe in elementary school or in middle school, it would have been helpful to have done some project-based learning where we could work on a project together, solve some problems together, and design some stuff. I even talked with, uh, I mean, there are some amazing professors in California that I had an opportunity to speak with, uh, Dr. Sue Rosser, who is the Vice President of Academic Affairs and Provost of SF State. And she talked about, she's a scientist. Yeah, and she's actually one of my advisors. She talked about how um, how challenging it is for women to not just enter into the sciences, but to retain or to stay. The retention rates, you know, are just it's like a revolving door almost. And then for um, in, in talking with um, um, Dr. Kwabinabohan, who's a principal investigator for Neurogrid at Stanford, he talked about um, giving students the opportunity to part and build them because that was his experience. That's what interested him in science is to build things and taking them apart. And so from talking with lots of people, with Henry Sung, who was who was at um, Apple and at Google and Yahoo at one time, with TK Lakshman, who's a CTO of Phone Mind, talking with so many people and um, just connecting with them and finding out what ways Wayne Sutton from um, student ventures and build up VC, talking with them about okay, what what are next steps? And then I had the great opportunity of participating in a, um, a contest, which helped me in the areas where I needed to grow in digital literacy. Uh, the Oakland Digital Arts and Literacy Center was part of the uh, AT&T's 28 Days Making History Happen competition, and our team was a technology team. And be, and because of this competition. It was very cool. I mean, there are videos on YouTube about it. But um, our team won because our t- that uh, a lot of the team members really had an understanding of the role of technology and social media in solving problems. And as I was developing the mission, uh, so all this was happening at the same time, I developed my, the mission of Sankofa Global to be, our mission is to increase the number of women and people of color in science, technology, engineering, art, and math. 
and we do that. Go, 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 I love that mission. I'm really excited. Let me tell you a story about my little daughter who's, well, she's 10. And so when she was like three, she got into the tub and I'm sitting there watching her. She stood up, she sat down, she stood up, she sat down. She said, Mom, why does the water go up when I sit down and go down when I get up? And of course, she was talking about volume and volume and the displacement of water. Then it get recently, yes. like I go in the kitchen and I open the bottom cupboard and there are all these rows of glass jars, half filled with some kind of fluid with little strings in the bottom. So naturally, I start yelling, mm-hmm. "Madeline, Madeline!" She comes running and she was trying to make um, sugar crystals with the I guess it's a sugar yes. solution with a string and she couldn't get <laughs> yes. it. Then also, she watches TED Talk about how to make a water filter. She saw some guy who invented a thermosized water filter, and he was going to save Africa by giving everyone in Africa clean water. So Madeline got very inspired, and I didn't know this, that she watched it or that she got inspired. I go one morning, and I open my cupboard, my pantry door, to get my coffee out, and I drink Ely Cafe, and I unscrew it, and inside the, the... Ely Cafe, this little metal tin jar, is um, all this stuff, water with cotton balls, sticks, tape, paper. And, she, and of course, I start yelling, Madeline, Madeline. She comes running, comes running. Mom, <laughs> I'm trying to invent a water filter like the guy who's going to save Africa because I just want to do what he's doing. So, But I if love you it. say to her, if you say, Madeline, you're a scientist, you're a budding, she'll say, I hate science. And then mm-hmm. and she goes to an all-girls school. So she's not competing with the boys. But how do I change yes. her mind? Because she is a natural mm-hmm. scientist. But if you say, do you like science mm-hmm. or you're going to be a scientist, she says, no, no, I hate science. So what do I do about that? Well, it sounds like you're already doing a lot of it. You're giving her opportunities to explore and and to, to do uh, experiments. Give her those opportunities. I, I didn't Help give her, her the opportunity. Stuff. She just does it. She just experiments. She took it. She just well, and see that's isn't that amazing? That's the nature of children. We're always experimenting. We're always testing. They're always figuring stuff out. And if we give them the space and the materials and the tools, they'll do it. So today, it's so funny. Earlier today, um, just a few hours ago, I conducted a a Tinker Day workshop with some uh, elementary school teachers. I'm actually still at the school. And oh, cool. we talked about, given, we, we had the, I had the teachers write the directions on how to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And I said, make sure you're thorough. I took the peanut butter, I took the jar of jelly, the jar of peanut butter, and the bread, and I took a knife out, and I said, okay, here, here are your ingredients write the directions to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And, of course, we couldn't get past direction number one in either group because when you ask someone to explain what they're doing, we make assumptions. And so it's like, okay, you need to get two slices of bread. Well, where am I going to get the bread from? You have to open the bag and take the two slices of bread out. But no one wrote that. And so, yes, and so we talked about, what it is, especially for us teachers, what do we do? How do we? How are we helping facilitate children's learning without making assumptions? And so, and even for us as parents, giving students and and trust me, I know about the experiments. My daughter likes to see. She likes to find out what happens if you take a marker and stick it in water. What will happen? Yeah. <laughs> what, what happens yeah. to the ink? 
or she'll t- she'll make it some concoction with my perfume and some some uh, nail polish remover. And I'm like, Kelsey, what is this? Does oh, she say she likes science? She does like does science. Does she say yes. she likes science? She does. She doesn't say she likes science, but she does like science. I try, and I guess part of it is there's a still a perception for students that if you like math or if you like science, that makes you something, whatever that something is in their mind. Like so a nerd. We give them a nerd or not cool. Or I'm a nerd and proud of it. Whatever. Well, yeah, I am too, but I wasn't as a kid. I wasn't proud of it as a kid. I wasn't. I mean, it was, you know, I was, I thought I was a smart kid, <laughs> you know, for a long time. But then it became, um, what did what, what that mean for my social status? But again, going back to the idea of, of cohorts, that your daughter's Madeline? Madeline, yeah. Is your daughter's name? Madeline. Okay, so Madeline, you know, you, you bring some, I, I, I can, give you a, a list of supplies that she and her friends can tinker with. Just let them tinker. Just let them tinker. And then have them write about it without calling it science. Without, it's because if that's where she is and she just loves to do things and if she's into earth science and she wants to solve, you know, sustainability problems, give her those opportunities without putting a label on it. Because um, maybe she heard so that being a scientist means itself? something. It is may it the be. label itself that's not helpful? It may be. I mean, some kids like being called scientists. Some kids like being called mathematicians. But she may have heard something that says, you know, maybe scientists aren't cool or or the scientist is something else. It might help if you ask her, so what, what do you think a scientist is? What do you think a scientist does? And figure out what, what she thinks. Um, I was talking with a, a, a principal at a school, and she goes, you know, one of the things she, she's learned is that if we give kids the space and the opportunity to explore and to learn, they will astonish us with their findings. And oftentimes they do. But the, time, the, the, the key issues are the time and the space to do it. I mean, we're in a, um, um, a very interesting time in education when there's so much emphasis on testing, when there's so much emphasis on outcomes, um, but not as much emphasis on student growth or progress. Well, I think, I think mm-hmm. as a parent, I find that very, very difficult. And the thing about the, all this testing and um, and what it concerns me for children, because they're not getting space and time. This 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 expansive area to learn and grow. You know, like I've been working on this piece to submit to the Huffington Post um, about could I get into Yale today? Because I went to Yale when I was a kid, mm-hmm. when I you mm-hmm. know when I was high school, mm-hmm. and I don't think I could get in now because these mm-hmm. students who are applying to Ivy Leagues now they have these resumes. You know, they've solved world peace and the world <laughs> the fossil fuel, the, um, fossil fuel problems before they can even apply to Harvard or Yale. And I, as a teenager, I spent a lot of time sitting outside staring into space and just sitting on a rock Mm. and looking up at the sky. And what that did is it prepared me to be a novelist. It prepared me to be a writer. But there's no space on a college application for an extracurricular Mm. activity that says staring into space while sitting on a rock because you're supposed to be, you know, 
solving the fossil fuel crisis or solving world peace or solving world hunger, you know, before you even apply to Harvard or Yale. So I don't, I don't think I could get into Yale now if I was applying. Well, you know, which, which brings, it's so good you brought that up because in addition to college experience, what the influx of digital technology has done is given our, it's, it's opened a whole new door to entrepreneurship for any student at any age. I conducted a citizen science workshop in West Oakland, California. In West Oakland, wait, wait, tell me they what, call what it is the citizen science. What is that? Tell me what is citizen, the citizen science workshop. Citizen science is just that, citizens engaging in science. And so there, there's a whole formal citizen science, and then there's student citizen science. And in my, in my view and in my interpretation, it's using science to solve some of the world's problems. So, for example, there's a uh, what they call a food divide in West Oakland. When I was last in West Oakland, there were 58 liquor stores and zero grocery stores for a population of 32,000 people. Let that sink in for a minute. That 32,000 like people. Enough. That's not enough. No, but there are zero. There are zero grocery stores and 58 liquor stores. Okay. okay. So where are people getting? No, it's not okay. It's called the food desert. Um, so what do people do for food? They end up going to the corner stores and spending their money. And a lot of the, the population is economically disadvantaged and poor. And so and a lot of them don't have, not all of them, so many of them don't have, public tra- don't have uh, cars. And so they have to rely on public transportation to, get, to go to, to the outer um, little towns to go to the grocery store. And so they end up not going to the grocery stores. And the students identified this as a problem, at least seventh graders. And so we talked about how can science, technology, engineering, art, and math solve some of these problems? What can we do? You students, you seventh graders, what can you do to do something about the food desert? So we established a food fitness and tech workshop because not only did they say that the um, food divide was a problem, but that obesity was a problem. And they mm-hmm. talked about themselves that, okay, here we are. We have corner stores that don't necessarily have nutritious food in them. What's amazing is the Hope Collaborative is a nonprofit organization that has been working with the corner stores in uh, West Oakland to establish the Corner Store Project, which in a lot, it's happened a lot in New York, where the small bodegas and the small stores are now carrying healthy and nutritious choices for folks. And so the Hope That's Collaborative so cool. has been very it's 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 amazing because at, um, when i i've been uh been in new york now almost 9 months uh but when i was out in west oakland in california there hadn't been a plan to build a grocery store anytime soon so i don't know if that's still happening or not but what i do know is that the hope collaborative has spent time working with neighborhood stores to bring healthy choices into their markets, their small markets. And so some of the students talked about, we also invited uh, the Bay Area Rapid Transit, BART, Executive Director Robert Rayburn, to participate in our food, fitness, and tech workshop. And uh, he talked about, it was was incredible. I mean, the students were incredible. Uh, The volunteers were incredible. The nonprofits who came to join us. And Robert, uh, Mr. Rayburn talked about the open source uh, uh, materials that are available on the BART website to design an app. So, for example, uh, say 
you wanted to come up with an idea about how to get information to folks, and this is what the students inevitably did, was come up with the idea of here are some places where you can go to find um, a, a farmer's market in West Oakland because there are some there, but not everybody knows about them. And some of the students said, well, what if we develop an app for people to find out where are the places they can actually get help, healthy um, food? And so that was one of their ideas. And if I was in West Oakland right now, we'd be working on it. Hopefully they're working on it by themselves. That is but, that's um, amazing. And it's it's such a great um, experience for the students because it has a direct positive impact on their community and themselves. Correct. correct. And that's what I mean about digital literacy, digital technology impacting the entrepreneurship space, that anybody can be an entrepreneur. Anybody can come up with an idea. Um, anybody can, they can. There, there are these vast opportunities, infinite opportunities in entrepreneurship. And, of course, it takes a lot of bootstrapping, a lot of collaborating, a lot of heartache, <laughs> a lot of, a lot of yeah. um, innovation just to get something like that going. But it's, it's an option. So for that person who's staring up at the heavens to figure out what makes life work, how do I think, you know, you, you can use that. You can use your creativity and your innovation and combine it with technology and, and, and make something for yourself. And so a lot of that's what Sankofa Global is about. Yes, facilitating opportunities for students to um, engage in workshops. Um, this professional development I did today is in preparation for a Tinker Day for the fourth graders. Um, I did oh, a that's... Tinker Day and another... Yeah, another day for some second graders. And so just giving folks these. Yes. Tell my listeners where they can find out. Yeah. Tell my listeners where they can find the Sankofa Global Project online and if they want to make donations, how can they do that? Because it's a not-for-profit, right? Yes, it is. It's a non-profit. And it's um, SankofaGlobalProject.com. S as in Sam, A, N as in Nancy, K, O, F as in Frank, a Sankofa Global Project dot com. And Sankofa means to reach back and get it. As you're looking toward the future, reaching back to bring people along with you. And so that's that's the thrust of my life. My parents set the example, my grandparents set the example of looking forward and reaching back. And so I'm just carrying on the tradition of my family of making sure that I'm using the talents and the gifts that I have to bring forth folks who may not have had the opportunities that I have. I've been very, very fortunate, very, very privileged, in spite of the obstacles that I faced um, in my life. And um, my my job, terms, my mission here, yes. In terms of your um, the educational work you do and going into schools, is there a website yes. for that, for the educational consulting you do? And can you talk just yes. a, bit, a bit about that sure. and say where people can find it? You can visit my website at tracylgray.com, T-R-A-C-Y-L is Larry, G-R-A-Y.com. I'm an education consultant. I do professional development in um, schools. I'm a consultant for Bank Street College of Education, you know, full circle. Got a chance. I mean, they taught me, and I get to work with them um, in, in supporting schools. I work with charter schools. I work with organizations to help them to develop appropriate curricula for their students. Um, I do parent workshops. I get, I'm, I'm, I'm very, very fortunate that um, 
I have a plethora of resources in and and, and um, folks with whom I work who are also so able are to you, um, offer this. Yes. Are you most famous for like your Tinker Day workshops and the Citizen Science kind of the S T E A M workshops? Um, are you most famous for that? Why do the most schools call you? Uh, most schools call me for professional development, and I get to incorporate both. So um, when I do the professional development, I always make sure that I do a, a, a part on stu- student development. Um, so I, I – hello, are you there? I'm here. Tracy? Okay. Can you hear me? I always do a part – yes, I can. I always make sure that I include a piece on student development. That's essential and what's developmentally appropriate. And so I incorporate both. Um, because the work that I'm doing in, in the STEAM area informs my practice as a consultant. And so the, the two are married. I get to do, I have the very distinct pleasure of doing both. And um, I, I really enjoy what I'm doing and using the education and the tools and my little toolkit that I have to help all people to really be their best selves. I love it. I love it. So just we're running out of time. We've got like three minutes left. But yes. can you tell us quickly about your books? Yes, absolutely. My first book, I said, is uh, uh, Mommy, Where's My Daddy? It's the story of my oldest daughter asking about her dad. And um, I made it one of my master's thesis uh, um, idea uh, project, the subject of my master's thesis. And then I published a book, a children's book. And then my second book is called Results. And it's an anthology of 17 authors talking about our ventures in entrepreneurship, some of the pitfalls, the things we've learned, and how we're moving forward to get results. And so um, you can see, actually, if you go to my website, tracyogray.com, that's the first page that pops up, is the uh, page on the book results. So. Well, Tracy, it's been amazing and wonderful to have you on. I'm sorry we lost the first couple of minutes of the show, and maybe you can come back on. Not a I problem. Feel like we just scratched the surface of what you have to tell us. So, thank you. You're amazing. I would love to. Readers, great. Uh, my listeners should go to tracylgray.com and sankofaglobalproject.com to see what Tracy's been up to. It's pretty amazing. Um, it's just awesome what she's doing. Um, and thank you again, Tracy, for being on the show. So, thank you, Tracy. Um, and to everyone who's listening, thanks so much for joining us. Sorry we were um, a little bit late. Please come back next week on Wednesday at 1 p.m. to hear Stephanie Maloney, who is a young musical theater actress, talk about singing and dancing right now. And on June 18th at 1 p.m., which is a Thursday, Desiree Watson of Wellness International will talk about the wellness lifestyle. On June 25th, Marnie Galloway, a comic artist and illustrator, will talk about the state of the comic and the graphic novel. On July 2nd, producer and director Christine Yu will talk about her journey. She made um, The Wedding Palace, which is the Korean version of My Big Fat Greek Wedding, and um, she'll talk about being a woman director in Hollywood. So I think that's uh, even harder if it's possible than to be a woman scientist. Um, And then on July 9th, it'll be kind of fun. We'll have internationally renowned Vedic astrologer Camilla Sutton to tell us about how to make our lucky stars work for us. So thank you again for joining me. Come back next week. Check the website, the Blog Talk Radio website, and the um, independentartistthinkers.com website. Thank you, Tracy.
has been Tracy L. Slatten on the Independent Artists and Thinkers Network. Thanks for joining us. Come back next week.